0: If you have a copy of God's Word, could you take it and turn to Numbers 14 this morning? I think if you pick up one of the Bibles in the back, it'll be page 83. So appreciative of uh, those that led us in worship this morning. I appreciate Chris's sensitivity to uh, sing and lead us in singing and how the the Lord has led him. Chris mentioned, we talked about something last week and kind of began a discussion. Actually, I'm extremely pleased it's been uh, carrying on within the con- congregation this week. We began a discussion of defining moments. We gave a description of that last week. A defining moment is where a decision you make or a direction you take has a significant impact on your future and the lives of others. So a defining moment is where a a particular decision or maybe it's a series of decisions, a direction, ends up having a pretty strong impact on your own future, your own life, as well as the lives of others. There's a thousand defining moments that don't alter history. Continents don't move because of a decision. But there are a lot of defining moments. There are thousands represented in this room that have significantly shaped the lives of people. Lots of people. And so it very well may be that sometimes we come to these defining moments and we, we've chosen them. It's just that, that life cycle. It's just the time Maybe we've looked for it. And maybe we embrace it, that, that moment. We're excited about it. But likewise, I think there's a lot of defining moments that come into our lives where decisions and directions where we, we didn't ask for it. We didn't really choose it. We wouldn't have chosen that path. We would have chosen some alternative. Maybe something much easier. Maybe some crisis, crisis in the world, crisis in our own life, crisis in our family, or maybe some poor decision another person made, perhaps even a sinful decision, ended up kind of as the dominoes fell, it meant your life is going to be changed forever. What we did see last week, and kind of as we're sorting through what this book of numbers is all about is that God's people in Scripture, we looked at it in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and, and in Numbers, had just been given this promise, this unmistakable promise, that they would receive a piece of land in the Middle East, and it's, the promised land is what it, it's become referred to. They would They would live in that area, and it would be a land of freedom and rest, and that they... They had had hundreds of years of this promise being reinforced. And, and when we come to this place in Numbers, they're actually on the verge of all of that happening. So it's one thing like to know it's coming, but it's like that moment of truth when you wake up and this is the day. This is the thing that we've been waiting for. And, and they are living in that when you get to Numbers 13 and 14. They sent some spies... To represent kind of the nation of Israel, and they sent 12, one for each of the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, to go in and look at the land, and the spies did that. They come back with a report. Two of the spies say, We can do this. With God's help, we can do this. But the other 10 have a very different story. As a matter of fact, scripture describes it as an evil report. They're saying, This isn't going to work, this can't be done. And so this is the moment, this is the defining moment, and and actually there are places in Scripture that kind of slow down. I mean, there's times when you'll read three or four verses and it's like you've covered 50 years, and then there's times where you read kind of play-by-play, blow-by-blow of the actions and the attitudes and the words of God's people. And in this particular place, we're going to see it. We're going to watch God's people self-destruct. We're going to watch their actions and their words. And Numbers 14 is going to take us deeper into the heart. Numbers chapter 14, let's, let's begin reading. And if, if you're new to God's word, we all were new at some point, right? So if you found numbers and maybe you just see, you do see numbers in front of you and you see big ones and little ones. The big ones are the chapter numbers, small ones are verse numbers. You're orienting yourself to an ancient story that God is speaking to us today. Numbers chapter 14 and verse 1. All the congregation of Israel raised a loud cry. All the people wept that night that they had received this report. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land only to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will become a prey. Yeah, wouldn't it have been better for us just to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader. Let's go back to Egypt. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among them, who had spied out the land. They tore their clothes. It's a, a symbol of desperation. And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out, it's an exceedingly good land. You know, if the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land and, and give it to us. It's a land that flows with milk and honey. So let's, let's not rebel against the Lord. Let's not fear the people of the land. They're, they're bread for us. One paraphrase says, we can eat them for lunch. And this, this is no issue. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Don't fear them. But then all the congregation said, to stone them with stones. The glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. and The Lord said to Moses, how long? How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs I've done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence, disinherit them. I will make of you, Moses, a greater nation and mightier than they. We don't do ourselves any favors if we don't look at what's going on in their lives and then apply it to our own lives. Because defining moments have a way of revealing things, and defining moments reveal what is going on inside us. Defining moments reveal what is going on inside us. In some ways, it's a test of our, our heart, not our physical heart, but our spiritual heart. It's almost as if it's a spiritual echocardiogram. This this story, it's, it's as if there's going to be these sound waves, this story is going to To see where are the clots and where is our heart not functioning as it properly should, where's the irregularities? And as we apply this story to the heart, we're we're going to look at what's going on and and we see, first of all, kind of our, our what's going on inside of us, what's going on inside of them, and one of the gauges, one of the ways we can really test and tell what's going on in our heart is to look at our response to God's word. It seems extremely simple. But one way we can tell what's going on inside us is to look at our response to God's word. If we were to kind of plot a continuum here, we were to say over here, God's word is seeming more relevant and more important. And over here, God's word is seeming less relevant and less important. The question is, where, where are we responding and how are we responding to God's word You see, in verse 11, it it specifically says they are not believing in God's word. They don't believe it. They're not, they're not finding it plausible. Deep down, their actions are betraying what's going on. They, they're not believing that. But, but even further than that, in verse 9, I mean, Caleb, did you hear him pleading? Let's not rebel. Let's not do this. Let's not go the opposite way. Let's not disobey. Deep down, deep down, hear this. They aren't going to do what God told them to do. It's not a mistake of whether, uh, did we hear God accurately? They know what they're supposed to do and they are making a clear determination. We're not going to do it. They're living in fear, but the fear they're living in is not the fear of the Lord, but it's the fear of the circumstances and fear of the enemies. There's no awe Of God, He actually seems small, which we talked about last week. So, what goes inside, what's going on inside us? It may be we're near a defining moment, it's going to a decision we have on the horizon, direction we are taking. Can I ask a question? It's a very simple question. And it's not meant to be legalistic at all. The question is, when was the last time you did something simply because God said to do it? Where you ordered your life simply because God said do this and you said, Jesus, you are my king, I'll do it, I'll do it. When is the last time you chose not to do something because God clearly said don't do that? And you read even Jesus gave command after command after command after command. They weren't suggestions. When was the last time you chose to avoid something simply because God said, don't do that? Does it even factor in? When was the last time we can remember that the Lord did such a deep work in us through the word? So we we went to the word or, or maybe you listened to it and, and you heard it, and it, it, it did something inside of you. You were headed down a path, and it redirected you. You had chosen a particular attitude or perspective, and it corrected that. I came across this quote by uh, Tim, Qu- Tim Keller this week. I think it applies here. He said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. If your God never disagrees with you, you may just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Because it's likely the God that rules the universe is going to say some things, and in your heart you're going to say, I don't want to do it. I don't really like that. I really would choose a different way. And in here... That is what is exposed, a choice in a relationship, a choice in how we're going to spend our time, a choice in how we'll spend our money, a choice in our sacrifices. Okay, so a defining moment is going to say what's going on inside, and one of those things going on inside is how am I responding to God's word? But there is another indicator, another test, if you will, of of determining what's going on inside, and that is where are the affections of our heart? where are the affections or the desires of our heart? And once again, if we were to plot the continuum, because all relationships, all relationships kind of move on a continuum, don't they? There's, there's times where actually we're growing closer to another person and our heart's being moved in that direction, whether it's a deeper friendship or a relationship with a family member or, or a spouse or, or, or you fill in the blank. And yet there's other times where we would know. No, actually it's moving in a different direction. I'm I'm less inclined to be eager to listen, to answer the phone when they call. I'm I'm less inclined to pay attention to what they are saying. I'm less inclined to be interested. What's going on with the affections of our heart? What's going on in this passage? You know, you can see in this verse, look at verse 11. Because we see how God describes what's going on in the. Notice what the Lord says to Moses, how long will this people despise me? Or your translation might say, hold me in contempt. How long will they spurn me? So I imagine the people of Israel say, hey, we're just looking out for our family. And God says, how long in their heart will they despise me? Verse 22, if you read down, how long will they put me to the test? Verse 35, it talks about this whole group gathering together against the Lord. As a matter of fact, that verse comes, that word, wording against me, God speaking, how long will they do this against me comes up again and again and again. How long are they going to do this? And and so this is not you and I. So you and I, we may hold grudges and things may be petty and we may perceive slights here and, and, and mistreatment there and really someone would tell us, I would just grow up. That wasn't a slight toward you. That's not what's going on with God. However God reads the situation, it's 100% accurate. What he's saying is what's going on in your heart, Israel, is you now have a pattern of, of your heart not moving toward me but actually despising me gathering together against me it feels very personal even when they say like we're going to get us some new leaders around here. So we hear that in our ears living in a democratic republic. We say you know what if our leaders aren't doing we'll just just vote them out. We'll just clean clean house in Washington. We'll, We'll start with a new batch of leaders. Yeah it's very different when God has appointed the leader and explicitly spoken, saying, this is my leader, Moses and Aaron. To say, yeah, God, yeah, you messed up on this one. We're going to get us some new ones. We don't want you running the show. You begin to see the affections of the heart. You actually even see it very clearly in verse 2. Look at verse 2 again. Notice the questions here, alrighty? Or they're not really questions, they're exclamations, right? In in verse 2, just would that we had died in the land of Egypt. That would have been better. While while we're at it, you know, if we got out of Egypt, that was... Would that we had just died in the wilderness? And then notice the question in verse 3, why is the Lord... Hear that again. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land. They're not addressing it to the Lord. They're grumbling and they're just letting that lay out there. Why would the Lord do something like this? Makes no sense to me. It doesn't seem right. I can't see any good reason. So so they're blinded here. They, they don't see that God has been their protector, provider, deliverer, rescuer, their hope. This is no momentary lapse of judgment. they put God to the test ten times. They're saying, well, why why is the Lord acting like that? There's no good reason. It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem right that God would act this way. You hear the echoes in our own heart. You know what? It doesn't seem right to me that God would not let me do whatever makes me immediately happy. That doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem fair. I mean, why shouldn't I be able to act on any sexual impulse I have? It doesn't seem right that God would limit that. It doesn't seem right that God would say for, for me to persevere in an unhappy marriage. I mean, how fair is that? I mean, why would God do that? Why is the Lord even saying that? Why? And you begin to notice The questioning of the Lord. It doesn't seem fair that that God would expect me to follow him after this tragic incident in my life. It doesn't seem right that I should be expected not to be bitter and that God should even expect me to forgive when I've been undeniably wronged. That's not right. That's not fair. When we talk like that, when we think like that, when we feel like that, It's given an indicator of our heart. You know, my my job this morning is not to scold you into loving God more. I don't think I can scold your affections into really just loving God more. I don't think think affections work that way. I'm not the chief scolder. What my role in... In this room this morning is the chief reminder. I want to remind you of how God made you with a purpose. I want to remind you how God has ordered your path. I want to remind you how God has held on to you when you thought you were going to break. I want to remind even my own heart that God has so often kept me from destroying me. And God has walked with me in pain and hurting. And God has come to my rescue. And God has assured me of His love. And he's done that for me in preschool and he's done that for me in elementary school and middle school and high school and in college and in graduate work and he's done that on days I felt great and on days when I felt like a total, a total loser. Can I remind you of the God who strengthened you in that day when you walked into the operating room and you really didn't know how things were going to come, come out? Can I remind you of the God that didn't leave you when you walked away from a cemetery having just your heart laid out and broken, but he walked with you the days and the weeks and the months following that? Can I remind you of the God who has forgiven you? And you know what you've done, and I know what I've done, and I know the places where I've failed him and where I have been a hypocrite and where I've acted one way. and not. God knows all that and still... He has forgiven us of our sins. Can I remind you of the God who's making all things new? Let's just kind of dispense with formalities. Let's not pretend. There's no need to live a double life. Can we just bring all that out into the open? And and here's the question in my heart. This God that I've just described, my own personal experience, but I know so many in this room, you've had the same experience. Are you moving closer to him? Or are you moving, is your heart growing colder? And what would be the next step you would need to take to stir those affections once more? Who do you need to talk to? What time do you need to get alone by yourself in God's word? What words do you need to pen? What do you need to do to take that next step to say, I'm not going to live with a heart that's growing colder to the Lord, but I'm going to live with a heart that is growing closer to Him? Makes all the difference in defining moments. Defining moment reveals what's going on on the inside. A defining moment also reveals that how, how much we need each other. How much we need each other. You know, as I read this story, what was so tragic to me is that the whole community breaks down here. You know, one of God's God's great gifts to us is a community, is other believers, it's brothers and sisters. I mean, so Sunday every morning, I mean, yeah, this is a, a big part of my job, but it's also, I recognize when my heart is sensitive, I recognize this is God's gift to me I'm going to be flooded with grace. There's going to be a stream of grace flowing in my direction. It's going to be other brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm going to get to see them. And this is God's gift. But, but Satan has a way of taking God's gift and, and twisting it, doesn't he? And so here, what should be God's gift, I mean, there's a congregation of God's people instead turns out to be kind of a, a cycle of more grumbling and more complaining and, and going the wrong direction. As I just begin kind of circling words in this passage, I, verse one, I came across all the congregation. Verse two, all the people of Israel." Verse five, "The assembly of the congregation." Verse 10, "All the congregation, all the people of Israel." Verse 27, it actually gets labeled a wicked congregation." And verse 35, a wicked congregation because it's gathered against the Lord." It's one thing if I do it individually, but as a congregation, I mean, what God had in mind is that we are meant to stir each other up to love and good works, but here it's gone off the rails. You know, the writer of Hebrews recalls this very story. So he writes, what, 1,300 years later? And he recalls this very story. And you know what his kind of takeaway, his points of application from, look back in the wilderness and then remember this. Look at, look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12. It says, take care, brothers. You better be on the lookout. Lest there be some... Uh, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Be careful. But then what is the next thing? In contrast to that, this evil, unbelieving heart that leads you to do exactly what Numbers 14 does, instead of that, verse 13 says, exhort one another, so encourage one another verbally, encourage one another, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another. And what's the frequency? What is the frequency? Every day. Church, we need each other in these defining moments, not to wallow, but to grow. We need to learn to care more deeply than we ever have before. We need to learn how to how to say, love it, say hard things in a very loving way. We need each other. We need to grow in wisdom, both giving it as well as listening for it and receiving it and applying it. We need to move beyond perpetually casual relationships that don't engage deeply. Why? Because the threat is we could turn away. We could be deceived and our hearts could be hardened. We need each other because sometimes I don't always see quite clearly how God has made me, so you remind me that God has made us. God has ordered our path. God has held us. God has kept us. God has walked with us. God has saved us. God has assured us. God has strengthened us. God has forgiven us. We need that exhortation, and the frequency says, Every day. How often, how often do you intentionally place yourself in connection with your church family? How often? Nothing can replace like face-to-face and sitting around a, uh, a living room or a kitchen table. Nothing replaces that, but technology can be our friend here in that we communicate to each other. And maybe we don't have time for a 30-minute conversation, but we do have time for a text. We do have time to send a message. And we do have time to use the technology that God has given to say... Pray for you today. Or to check in with someone who's asked you to hold them accountable. Or to confess our sins one to another. All of what I just said took place in my life this week. I, I need it. I need it. I need reminders every day. Lest my heart grows hardened. Defining moment reveals how much we need each other. When we, need, when we have a moral failure, we need each other. We have financial strain or maybe even collapse, we need each other. When there's a painful breakup, we don't need to isolate, we need each other. When we have kids that are going astray, we need each other. When there's betrayal, we need each other. When there's suffering and death, we don't need to isolate, we need each other more. When there's family dysfunction or ethical dilemmas we're dealing with, we need each other. When there's unusually powerful temptations that we've fought for a lifetime, we need each other. When someone comes clean with a habit and says, will you pray, we need each other. The consequences are too great, sin is too deceitful, and none of us can afford to do the Christian life as a solo sport. Defining moments reveal it, don't they? Can we, can we keep reading? Look, look at verse 11 as well. Let's go back there. Moses said to the Lord, then the, sorry, verse 11, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me? He promises in verse 12, I'll strike them. I'll basically move them out of the way and Moses, I'll make you a great nation. But Moses said to the Lord, no, because then the Egyptians will hear about it. For you brought this people up in your might from among them. And they will they'll tell the inhabitants of this land. And they have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of your people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face. Your cloud stands over them. You go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. No, now if you kill this people... As one man, then the nations who have heard your fame, they'll say, well, it's because the Lord was not able to bring them up into this land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. He, He wasn't able. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression not clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third, fourth generation, you hear Moses, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who've seen my glory, my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and put me to the test these ten times. Have not obeyed my voice. None of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. None of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully. I love that description. A different spirit, following the Lord fully. I'll bring into the land into which he went and his descendants shall possess it. Since the... Amalekites and the Canaanites who are on the valleys you turn tomorrow set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea what you read there in verse 25 is a divinely directed detour head out oh this is just the story interwoven with grace they hear from the Lord he does forgive discipline they experience consequences and then moving forward God sustains them but he does transfer those promises to the next generation But I want us to look at another character in this story, and that is Moses. You see, a defining moment reveals what we want the most. What we really want the most. You see Moses had an offer on the table there? So God says, I'll hit reset. And Moses, you're going to be the franchise player. I'm going to build the nation around you. I'm going to make your name great. So you're great, 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 great. You're going to be the father of this nation. And Moses, I mean, let's not forget, they would kind of had in a congregational vote, they had voted Moses out, right? We need new leaders. Leaders that can get us back to Egypt. And Moses still says, I'm not interested in that. What is Moses interested in? Well, in verse 5, I mean, he's on his face before the Lord after hearing he's just been given a vote of no confidence. And in verse 13, his instinct is not so much to say, sure, Lord, sign me up. I'm kind of tired of dealing with him too. His instinct is to pray, asking God to show his glory. His desire is is that God would be known. This is the reasoning, right? If God acted in a horrific judgment, the nations will will believe that God isn't really capable. I mean, We could be pious about this and say, you know, Moses, I think God can take care of his own reputation. I think he can quite handle himself. But before we get on a high horse and do that, do you have that same passion for God's glory that Moses had? Do I have that? I don't need this offer, Moses says. What I want is your name to be glorified. What I want is the nations to know there's a God in Israel. Does it make us sick for God's name not to be revered? Does it make us long for something better when at our high school or at University of Delaware or Wilmington University or the office or the cubicle or Newcastle County does it does it bother us that God's name isn't revered, it's actually taken in vain? I mean, does that, does that impact our hearts? Do we say, I want God to be glorified. I don't need, I don't need a name. I don't need a reputation. I, I care about God and his fame. Do we have this same intensity, this passion for God's glory, neighbors to be able to see something different, coworkers and family members to see God is great? Is this what's driving us? I mean, this is what motivates people to actually hold their life loosely, this is what motivates people to go to unreached countries and, and take the gospel there where Christ isn't named. It's not guilt, it's God's glory. They want Christ to be known there. They think his fame should be known throughout the world. And by the way, that same glory motivates us to live on mission in the suburbs. We don't need plane tickets and passports to have this same impulse To use our time as if it isn't our own and use our money as if God's name is more important than our own comfort and to fight sin as if God's name is worth the fight. It's worth the fight. And to care for others as if God's reputation really matters and to deny ourselves so that God might receive greater glory. That's the hunger of Moses. Moses says, God, I want your name to be seen. I want your power to be seen. And so Moses asked, And and we hear it like, God, I want want your power and your glory. And we sang that at the beginning of our service. Show us your power and show us your glory. And listen to what Moses thinks that is really all about. Verse 17. Now, please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised. Is that going to be in earthquakes or cyclones? Or is that going to be in some massive geological reforming of the world? No, this is where it's going to come. Verse 18. I'll let the power of the Lord be great. Like this, the Lord being slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I got my categories for the power of the Lord and this just resets all of them. So the one person that comes clean with God and the Lord forgives them, like right there, God's power show. The person that basks in the steadfast love of the Lord, right there. God's glory, Shana. What a powerful thing. Psalm twenty seven, one thing I've desired. I'm gonna pursue that. Galatians six fourteen, God forbid that I should brag, boast about anything else. Isaiah twenty six eight. Your fame and your renown are the desire of our souls. His word, his name, his people, his son. Is that what we truly want the most? When we care for God's glory the most, we serve the most people, don't we? Others are better if we care about God's glory more. God's people survive because Moses cares more about God's fame than he does his own agenda. So much going on here. I love the picture of Moses, don't you? Kind of walking right in the middle. And here we have the sinful people and we have a holy God. And Moses is like bringing those together. As such a picture. A picture of someone standing between sinners and a holy God. But it's a picture of someone greater than Moses. It's a picture of someone who loves people enough to call on God to forgive them. We see that in part in Moses. We see that in full in Jesus Christ. On the cross, it is Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It is Jesus on the cross saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's forsaken. And we're accepted. He's condemned and we live forever. He's greater than Moses. Jesus is. Because it isn't just one ethnicity or nation that hangs in the balance. It's the, the nations. It's all of us. He doesn't just pray, but he does what Moses couldn't do he pays the consequences for our sin. In Moses, we see a picture of Jesus. Is this moment a defining moment? What's going on on the inside? What really matters most? And maybe it isn't a defining moment right now, but before the end of the semester, you might be right in the middle one. Do you realize today how much you need God's people? We take a moment and just quiet our hearts. Ask the Lord to show us. Ask the Lord to build hope. We're going to just take a moment of quiet prayer, and then Chris and the team are going to lead us in really a prayer. It says, to the only God who can keep us from falling, be glory and honor. Let's pray.